Blog Talk Radio. Yvonne Mason. It is our last show of the week, just of the week. We start back up next Wednesday. And I wanted to end this week with an educational show. We'll get into that in a minute, but it, I promise you it will not be boring because I know I'm going to learn something and y'all know how I love to learn. I want to thank each and every one of you all for supporting this show and to continue supporting this show. Because of y'all, we're heard in over 200 200 countries with 200,000 plus listeners when you add this show to all podcasts and radio stations that this show is now heard on. I am so, so grateful because not only are y'all supporting the show, which is your show, by the way, it's not even my show, I just facilitate it, but the guests that come on the show are exposed to so many other places that they might not otherwise be. And it's so, so wonderful to see those numbers rise in the different countries that were heard on. And I am so grateful, so blessed, and so thankful 
to be able to do this for them. And with that being said, there's two ways you can get on the show, ladies and gentlemen. One, you can come on as a guest, and I can promise you, when you come on as a guest, you'll want to come back because we have so much fun here. Even when we do the serious stuff, we still have fun. Or you can become a sponsor for the show. And I, I don't intend to get rich. Get rich. I just want to get one opportunity. You can reach me at Off the Chain Radio at Yahoo.com, and I'll tell you how to do one or both of those at any given time. And I want to welcome a new sponsor, author Amy Lyle. She has been on our show. She's a comedian and an actor that lives in Atlanta, and she has a unique outlook on life. Most people hide their failures, but Amy wrote a whole book about hers. It's called The Book of Failures. The book opens with, I have been married for 20 years, not to the same people, but 20 years nonetheless. The book talks about relationships, how hard it is to blend a family, and just funny failures of everyday life. The reason it's been a bestseller for over a year is that it is so relatable. Everybody needs more laughter in their lives. Buy for yourself or for a friend that is going through a hard time. The Book of Failures is available at some Barnes & Noble stores and on Amazon as a paperback, ebook, or it is also an audio version. The Book of Failures by Amy Lyle. Get it today. Also, I'm glad to listen to audiobooks, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know your next audiobook favorite. The Adopt an Audiobook program has new releases and audiobooks for every genre. All audiobooks are free to interested reviewers, and that's the kick. If you promise to do a review, you get to listen to the book free. Simply listen and share your thoughts, and the website is audiobookwormspromotion.com forward slash adopt an audiobook. Author J. Traveler Pelton has released two new books. The first one is Kai Dante's Strategium, and it goes like this. People are so happy about the destruction of the anti-fertility virus, they want Kai to run for president. Kai Dante for president indeed. The Oberlins are back and are successful in diverting the virus that is destroying the fertility of the populace. But in return, sanctuary is attacked and the family members are scattered to fight radiation sickness alone. Given only a strange point to use, will Kai and Micah, her brother, figure out the puzzle before they all die? Who in the family will survive to destroy the tyrant running the brotherhood? The second book she was a set in the future medieval times after the big war. Lucian thought that as the youngest son of the manor, his future would be as a simple land-owning farmer who raised good horses and went up to the manor to visit the family for holidays. After all, there were seven brothers older than he with much more entitlement to the inheritance. However, through a massacre and magic, his simple acceptance of a quiet life was going to come to a roaring end as he ends up leading the forces of his clan and the kingdom against an evil greater than any wizard had ever faced, an evil led by his own brothers. Well, he, his clan, and Falcon Crest survived the war. Ladies and gentlemen, those books are also on Amazon, and the author is J. Traveler Pelton. Diane Mote, also another author that's been on this show. And Australia, thank you very much because y'all put her on the bestseller list in Australia from the ads and from this show. She has a series of books out called the Sam Holden series. And Sam Holden is our favorite vigilante. The third book in the series, she is threatened when the FBI comes after her on one side and the commissioner wants her dead on the other side, will her double life be exposed? Will Sam be able to protect the animals, her friends, and herself? Check out Dog Bones by Diane Mote everywhere ebooks are sold. And if you haven't started this series yet, ladies and gentlemen, be sure to begin with Dog Gone by Diane Mote because right now it is free on Amazon. And with that, we are going to get started with our show tonight. Get you a piece of paper and a writing stick and sit down. Get your favorite beverage because you're going to want to take notes for this show. Trust me. Um, Alexander Lowry. He is a professor of finance at Gordon College and director of the school's Master of Science and Financial Analysis Program. He's also a board of directors member for FinTech and Financial Services Companies which means he's transforming, accelerating, and advising businesses. He's educating the workforce. 
As a professor, he helps students understand how the financial service industry works. And the Master's in Financial Analysis program helps students bridge their liberal arts background to a focused career in finance. As a board member, he works with fintech and financial services companies that want to transform traditional industry business models to unleash exponential growth and value. He is currently working with 20-plus early-stage and middle-market businesses to turn strategy strategy into action. Alexander, I am so sorry. I have gotten tongue-tied in my old age. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Yvonne. Delighted to be with you tonight. Okay. Where do we start? Because... Before the, right before the show, we sat down, we started talking, and my mind just went off into a thousand different directions, just, just started exploding. First of all, let me say I wish I was 40 years younger because I would find your college and roll in because if I knew at 20, 16, 17, 19, 20, what I know now, I probably would be a millionaire 10 times over, or I would have been a millionaire, gone broke, and made it again. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I think what you've just said there is you talked about what I would think is the eighth wonder of the world, and that's compound interest. And the reality is the earlier you start when you think about putting money away, even if it's just saving in the bank, not earning a lot, it grows, and money can earn money on top of itself. And that's what becomes so powerful. So it's wonderful for whatever age people start at, doing a better job managing their finances and being aware of it. Certainly, the earlier you start, the better off you're going to be. So would it be safe to say that I – Let's let's pretend that I'm 20, 23 years old. I have a new baby. I open this new baby a savings account with $100. I put restrictions on it that, that this money cannot be moved, transferred, done anything with until this kid reaches a certain age. And we keep adding. If Okay, let's say we're... We're doing really well, and we can put a whole lot of money in, and then all of a sudden things get a little bit tough, and we have to drop down to even a dollar a month. It's still worth it. Is it not to do it? Make it a habit that if you just put aside a dollar, that you're that you will have money for the future. So, great question. A little bit of a complex answer. Let's step back and put a 30,000 perspective on it. The simple answer, I would say yes. The more you can save, the better you can save, the better off you are. Put it in the context of that's assume maybe you're debt-free. Uh, you don't have credit card debt and other things, which you'd probably want to pay off first because they're higher interest. But the, the idea holds true. And let me just change your scenario slightly. So let's say you're going to have a Roth IRA, and I'll use that for a specific example. And from every year from age 20 to 30, you can put in $2,000. And so after those 10 years, you stop and you've saved $20,000. And it's invested and earning, uh, let's just say, 8% on average per year for the rest of your life. And that's person one. And person two starts putting into the account at age 30. And we'll put $2,000 in, same sort of thing. And they will do that for 30 years, from age 30 to age 60 and you can't catch up to the person from the first time, even though you've put in so much more money, because the money builds and compounds on itself over time, which is which is just so magical. And is it fair to say, Alexander, that young people, sometimes we don't, it's such a simple concept that we don't get it, because we're so focused on the here and now, we don't see... And as you and I were talking about before the show, people are going to start living even longer than they already now are now. My husband is 83. He has a defib in his chest. He, By mm. all rights, he should be dead because of all of his health issues. But he, he is still alive and he's still stable. And thankfully, because he was smart enough to save and to put back, I have to take care of him. So what do we need to do? Do we need to teach young people a different mode of thinking that we are going to live longer? And Social Security is not going to cut it. Savings accounts not going to cut it. 
So that's a great question. And the way we talked about it as we were coming on air, we were talking about there's a traditional model. Let's say what our grandparents depended on for retirement. It was what they call a three-legged stool. And you had your own individual savings. You would have Social Security. And you would also have a traditional pension, what we call defined benefit pension. And that was you worked at IBM for 20 to 40 years or you work as a police officer, fire department, when you retire, someone's going to pay out money for you. And those don't exist for the most part anymore because it was a lot of risk for either the company or the government to pay. And they realized, I'm going to transfer the risks. They have what we now call defined contribution plans. So those are your 401k, your 403b if you're in a nonprofit, those sort of equivalents where the responsibility is on you, Joe Individual, to put the money in, decide how you want to invest it, and the returns you get are your own. You own them, and you are responsible for them. Uh, and that can be great if you are doing a good job at it, but it can be risky if you have no idea what you're doing or you're not interested in doing it to your perspective. There are shocking statistics that show the average American can't afford a $500 emergency. And to think that you can't deal with that if you're the typical person, how are you going to handle a retirement, especially as advances in medical technology are coming through that we're going to be living longer? And, and you brought up a good point that most people cannot afford a, most people can't even afford a $60 doctor visit because the tentacles of that doctor visit, if you're sick, is prescription, days out of work, most of the times with no pay, um, loss of, of a multitude of things. Because if you're out of work, you don't get paid. If they contribute to your 401, it doesn't get contributed. So it becomes a ripple effect and that if we can't set aside enough money to survive a $60 visit, how can we set aside enough money, say, for three months or six months if we're out of work? Well, you, you touch on a good point. So an emergency fund is a big part of it. So if you want to think about um, what does someone need to do to save, and you're almost talking about growing and investing for your retirement. And for me, the first steps are really you, you need someone to get a handle on their financial picture. Imagine you have uh, three different credit cards you owe money to. Which one owes more interest, right? Because they're not going to charge the same amount. You want to pay off the, the one that charges the higher amount first because that costs you the most. And then after that, you want to build up an emergency fund. You know, people say you want to have three to six months expenses. And for a lot of people, that sounds like a crazy amount. How could I ever get that? Get a week's worth first and then build up to a month and you go from there. And whatever your comfort level is, a month, two months, three months, once you have that, and now you need to start saving, right? And you need to be building it out for the long term. I used the Roth IRA picture before because imagine someone is successful at investing. Roth IRAs have this wonderful situation compared to a traditional IRA. You, you have to pay taxes up front on a, on a Roth IRA, but it means it will be tax-free in the future. You can actually leave that in your estate to your heirs. So imagine you leave it to a grandchild, and it gets paid out over their lifetime. So instead of your child, your grandchild. Wow, that's a whole long time that money can grow and develop and be paid out. So, you know, if we can sit down and go through some of the finer details, we can also think about how to structure this, how do we prioritize it, what are the smart ways to go about doing it. And, Alexander, would it be fair to say that the general population is afraid of finance? I think I would paint it slightly differently, and I would say the general population has been uh, underserved by our educational system and our government in terms of being taught financial literacy. And for some people, that then manifests in being unclear about how to manage money. Maybe you weren't taught it in your home. Maybe you saw bad examples in your home for various reasons as well. And so people who don't know what to do, it can be paralyzing, and that's entirely understandable. I would equate it to public speaking. If you haven't been taught the skill set, it could feel horrible to be up there. And, uh, you know, when people, they do like the family feud top five surveys of, of fears of people, people fear public speaking more than they fear death. They would rather be in the box and give the eulogy, which I find ironic. And money is very similar in that regard to me. For some people, it's paralyzing. They don't even know where to begin. So how would, well, before I, I ask that question, there was a question that, that I brought up or a statement that I brought up right before we went live. And, and we got started into the weeds about it, and then we went live. And the question is, 
because you were talking about retiring from IBM, et cetera, et cetera. People no longer, as a general rule, go to a job People job hunt hop every five to seven years. To me, that's kind of um, scary because if one has a 401, it can get lost in the shuffle of moving around or it can not earn money in the shuffle of moving around. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, so let, that's a great idea. Let, let's take that as a statement. So let's say someone starts a first job out of college and they do the right thing and they open a 401k from day one and they're investing. Maybe man, Vanguard's managing their plan. So there's the money at Vanguard. Then five years later, they go to job number two, open a 401k, doing a great thing again. That, that 401k is managed by Fidelity, so they got some money in Fidelity. And you could bring your old plan with you in most cases, but let's say they left it at Vanguard. And maybe it's out of sight, out of mind. They're not thinking about it. So it might still be invested, but maybe they should have thought about, oh, I would have changed the fund or adjusted how I did it, but it was out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and they go to another company. Now, this one is managed by Ameritrade or whoever it is. And so, yes, you can forget about it, even if you've been doing the right thing. So there are different rules. You can consolidate it and bring it over to your new company. You can move them into a brokerage account uh, that you can manage differently at another firm. So even for people that have been doing the right thing, quote unquote, um, you're absolutely right. If you don't pay attention to it, it can be harder to be on track of it. Even just think about you're going to eventually want all of this in a will that your estate is going to be able to take care of it. So when you pass, people will know where this money is. Imagine you save diligently, but no one knew you had that Vanguard account from your first job and it just gets lost. That'd be terrible. Yeah, because it would still be sitting there earning money and nobody would, would know that it's there and it just keep sitting there on their money for the brokerage house and nobody else. And that brings up another question <laughs> that many people don't, I don't think don't realize is that when you work with a brokerage house, <clears throat> as a general rule, is it not true that the way the brokerage house makes their money is fees that are garnered from them taking care of your business? So you raise a great general point about fees, and there's been a lot of talk and better awareness over this over the last few years. And probably the best way to think about it are ETFs, the electronic traded funds. And what this, as a general principle, was meant to do is to give more liquidity, more visibility, better trading options for the mass population. ETF market has exploded. Vanguard is probably really the first one that was focused on fees in the mainstream with the view of, um, you can just invest in the stock market, take the S&P 500 in a tracker fund that's passively managed as lower fees, all things equal. And if all things are equal, lower fees will be better for you for the long run. No question about it. And we don't necessarily have to argue about mass, passive versus active managed tonight, but lower fees in general at face value are a good thing. ETFs have gotten really, really cheap. So Fidelity just announced recently that they're going to have a couple of ETFs that are basically zero trading cost. So that's a part of it, and that's in our favor as consumers. The price-to-trade stocks at the big companies, if we went back 40 years ago, these were very high prices, $50, $100 to trade some stocks. Now you're talking a lot of these companies, they're trading it for like 5 bucks. So it's gotten better and better for the average consumer. Uh, it still comes with a cost, and we haven't talked about taxes, right? If you decide to sell something there's what they call short versus long-term. If you've held it less than a year at short-term, the tax rate is higher, et cetera. We want to be cognizant of these things because let's say you bought Amazon and it went up 50% this year and you sold it after six months. You're happy that you thought it was right to sell and you were up 50%, but part of that is going to go back to the government and taxes unless it's in a taxable account like a Roth IRA where it's after tax. So to your point in general, Fees as a principle, not good. Lower fees, better, but also being thoughtful about our tax situation and other implications that can eat into the returns. And that that brings me to the next question. But before we get there, we're going to take a real quick break and patient bills. Ladies and gentlemen, see, I told you I'm, I am learning so much. And I oh, y'all, and I appreciate Alexander Lowry, financial wizard, professor. Gordon College. I wish I knew where the college was and I was able to go because I would go sit in his class and take note after note after note. 
We will be right back talking about finances and taking care of business and being able to retire without struggle as soon as we have this quick break. Best-selling and award-winning author of true crime and crime fiction, Yvonne Mason is back with a brand new book, The Pink Canary, a book that delves into the life of a drag queen and a marvelous whodunit. You can find this and all of Yvonne's other works on Amazon.com or find Yvonne Mason on Facebook and Twitter. You're gonna kill me. Buy your copy of Pink Canary now. Do you have cougars on your porch swing? Our horse is your new best friend. Do your nicest shoes get buried knee-deep in snow as your toes turn blue? Are you bothered by wolves at your woodpile? No, not that kind of wolf. Join wildlife artist and author Nancy Quinn and her family as they discover an exciting new life in Go West, Young Woman, a true Montana adventure. Available online and in bookstores. Or visit QuinnWildlifeArt.com for a personalized signed copy. Critics agree. It's a hoot. The book Ruined Days is at Amazon. Is it true? Travis's dad ruined America's day on November 22, 1963. Travis is still feeling the repercussions. He sets out from Kansas to ruin some days himself. Why? He's really, really pissed. When the same people who killed JFK kills his aunt and a new girlfriend, they become the hunted. Amazon by Ganat Wise. Ruined Days. And we are back. This is Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with financial wizard Alexander Lowry, who is also a professor of finance at Gordon College. And Already I've learned so much, and and I deal in finance quite a bit on my own. But ladies and gentlemen, take notes, pay attention, because this is something that is important for you now as well as in the long haul. And it's also something that you need to teach your children. And they're not too young to start learning about finance. Alexander, is that a fairly true statement? Oh, I, I believe so. so. But real quick answer to the question you made just for the break. Uh, Gordon College is just north of Boston, just so you know where it is. So oh, I, I think that we have a <laughs> – I'm, I'm a new parent myself. Uh, my daughter turned 10 months old today, and I am already thinking about – not that I can do anything right now with her, but what are the lessons I'm going to impart to her? And children at different ages, they grow and develop. You can do different things with. So I'll give you one example. When she's ready – uh, three, four years old, something like that. Eventually, she will become fascinated with money because that's something your dad talks about a lot. And she'll start to see coins and see they're of different values. And, and let's say we eventually teach her what a penny is and what's that worth. We were talking before about putting money away and investing and growing and developing. And a way you can share that with your kids is a concept is imagine you buy them a piggy bank, but not, not a pink one that you, that's opaque, but one that's translucent you could see through. And you explain to them how you put your money away and money grows, money earns money on top of itself. Well, how do you make that lesson come true to them? Put the penny in the jar together before they go to bed. And when they wake up, you've put a second penny in there so it doubles and they can see how the money grew. And the next night you put in another two pennies and it's doubled again. And you continue doing that. It, just like the classic old example of someone said um, the, the king offers them a salary for their job and they say, you know, start me out at a penny, but just double my salary every day for a month and I'll be happy. By the end of the month, if you do the math, they are making an astronomical salary, which for most people at face value, like how can that possibly be? But doubling your money over 30 days not that the piggy bank can eventually hold that many pennies, but it's just an exciting topic. So I think that's perhaps an easy way for all of us to wrap our head around it. And I love that analogy. And when, when someone says, well, it's just a penny, I'm not going to bother bending over and pick it up. I find that foolish because it's like you say, money bills on itself and a penny will make money, but you gotta, you gotta work at it. You gotta bend over and pick up that blooming penny. 
Well, I'll tell you a story. The way that I first got fascinated about money was because of my uncle, and he always picked up change, and he loved it. You know, just like you said, some people are embarrassed to go get it. He would get it with pride. His philosophy was, I want to walk into the sun because the money glints better that way, and he (laughs) described it as tax-free money. He would never spend change. You know, for me, I don't like change in my pocket. I will get rid of it first chance I can. He would collect it, and he would put it down in the basement. It would go in those giant pull-and-spring bottles, and there were different jars for different denominations, and they would be saved down there. And his view was, this is my retirement fund. And you think, well, how much could you save? His brother did the same thing. And when his brother finally cashed out after 40 years of doing this, uh, it was about $20,000. And you go, well, that's nuts. That wasn't invested. I agree on that. It wouldn't be my philosophy, but the principle of it was true. So my uncle would go walk around. He'd pick up change. When he'd go by a phone booth, he'd stick his money in the return slot to see if there's any free money there. So whenever I see change now, I laugh, I pick it up, and I think of my uncle, and it reminds me of him. So uh, I'm with you. Let's just talk about it as a principle, right? I don't think that's how most of us are going to retire. You know, the, the joke would be, what, if you're, you're looking to retire, what, are you going to walk down to the local fountain at uh, 5 in the morning for everybody gets up and scoop up all the change? Okay, if you did that every day, right, you could actually make some real money. That's not probably how you're going to fund your retirement. But the principle is sound of use money wisely, take advantage where you can. And, you know, for a lot of us, that could be cutting costs of um, not only it's well do I need a five dollar Starbucks every day but do I need these sorts of recurring costs can I keep it down but also how do you maximize your income make sure you're growing that potential pot and then when you have savings how do you invest that wisely so I think all of that together are good general principles for all of us well I just have to agree with your two uncles because um, my mother taught me that at a very early age and I, I too have jars all around the house where I drop change and I have them all over the house because I hate carrying change around. I have no idea how much mm. change I have, but it's all over the house. My dad did the same thing because my parents were both uh, post-World War II adults, and mm-hmm. they were Depression babies. So well, back let in me, the day. Let me perhaps give you, let me give you one potential tip that you may not be aware of. So if you want to think about the history of coins in America, the U.S. Mint changed the consumption of how much silver was in them over time. And 1965 was the year it switched. So if you go through your nickels, your dimes, your quarters, your half dollars, etc., when you see a year that will be stamped on all of them, I keep – we call this junk silver, so pre-1965, and you don't find many anymore. Most have been taken out of circulation and picked over by people who know what they're doing. But when you see those – I put them in a separate jar, and there are not that many of them, but I keep them. They're my junk silver, and this is the kind of thing that uh, if the apocalypse ever came, this has a little higher silver content, could be traded in. Again, not where you're going to fund your retirement with. I say it a bit jokingly, but <laughs> when I keep my change, that's one of the first things. Like, my wife laughs at me. She thinks I'm nuts, and I probably am, but it's one of those fun little things. Oh, these have higher silver content. They're worth more. <laughs> there you go. See? It's, it's all in the thought process. And, and that brings me to um, something that I, I read about you, which I absolutely love. And I want to talk about it a little bit before we go into um, how to teach somebody to take care of business. But you say faith, finance, and economics, they all work together. Explain that to those that I get it, but some might not. Sure. So Gordon College is a Christian college, and uh, we believe that there are biblical principles uh, that were the foundations of finance from where it began. Uh, Most people are probably familiar with the parable of the talents and how we're supposed to use that and invest that wisely. Some people see that as literally a parable about using your individual talents rather than the talent, which was a weight of gold and a very, very large amount of it. But there are principles you can chase back over time. So for us, it's think about how you're combining, uh, for those who are believers, the principles you have about whether it's tithing and giving back and investing your time wisely with your finances. And the way I would translate that for most people is you can do well while doing good. So I've got one friend, for example, who is wildly successful on Wall Street, and he makes a tremendous amount of money that he basically gives all away. 
in his view, is my unique skill set. God has given me this talent, and so that's what I should do, and I should use it. But I want to bless other people with the proceeds of my labor. And there are people that are really good at running nonprofits and saving the world and doing lots of good, and I want to support them because they need people like me to fund them. So he is doing well while doing good. And for us, that's basically how it comes together, work, faith, and economic integration. What is that to say that to, who he is, who, to whom is given much, much is expected? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, that for us, that, that comes back to basic finances as we think about it. So um, how many times have we heard the terrible stories about people who win the lottery and go bankrupt? Yeah, exactly. Heartbreaking. For, for whatever reason. Yeah, because A, they they see all these things and things fade away. They get broken, they get mm-hmm. stolen, they go away. And all of a sudden, they have all this money and I can get this and this and this and this and it can all make me happy. Well, the answer to that is a big fat no, because if you weren't happy before, Within yourself, you're not going to be happy with all these things that you can now acquire that you couldn't acquire before. Yes, I'm a firm believer that money doesn't buy happiness. It just buys everything else. In fact, I think it buys a lot of unhappiness, Alexander, in some instances. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Buys a lot of happiness and a lot of enemies. Okay, now, if, if I am... I'm, I'm coming to your college, and I am young, and I am a smart aleck, and I think I have all the answers to all the questions, and I'm going to do great things. I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. I'm going to have all this money, but I can't even count back change. If I had to go to the grocery store and I buy something that's $1.99, I don't even know how much money they've given me back because I can't count it back. My mother taught me to count back change when I was five years old. Hmm. But the young people can't even count back change. So how do you strip all of that away and start at the foundation, ground zero, and teach someone how to be a better manager of money? Because that is also faith-based. Yeah, I guess I'll use the word steward. And picking up on the, on the phrase you were talking about before, to much is given, much is expected. Um, to you know, a, a fool and his money are soon parted, as we would often say in a secular yeah. perspective. But for us, it's as simple as if we go back. We were talking about educating children before and growing, developing, thinking of as baby steps. And you have to learn to walk before you run. And uh, people thinking about the idea that. I'm going to invest in a market and make a lot of money. I encourage that. The idea of investing in stocks of great companies is a wonderful idea, but it's very hard to earn money. It's very easy to spend it like we were talking about on things like cars or boats or clothes, but it's also very easy to spend it on the price of education, I call it. So imagine you're at a party. Someone gives you a hot stock tip. You run out and buy it. Maybe it goes up. More likely it goes down. That's the price of education to learn. You need to be very thoughtful in how you do the analysis and invest it, and that can be a very expensive price of education. (laughs) Yeah, especially in this volatile market manipulation era that we live in. And the market is manipulated, and unless a young person understands how the market is manipulated and understands that it goes in cycles, and what goes way, way up is certainly going to come crashing way, way down. It's just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is when the politicians get involved in the stock market, we have to remember that politicians basically want to get reelected. That is their job to do. And one of the ways that they can get reelected is by having a booming economy. Now, you can't forever have a booming economy. The world doesn't work like that. Everything is cyclical. Like you said, what goes up must come down. And if we were to leave it alone, the market would fix itself. It would return to average. And the problem is it doesn't do average. It goes above or below for whatever reason. And we have been way above average for a long time, which means we're overdue for a correction. The longer we kick the can down the road by short-term measures, the more severe the correction is going to be as a result. So think about when the stock 
crash uh, happened a decade ago. We had the great financial crisis. The housing crisis happens. Nothing can go up forever. There are problems that will emerge, and we're overdue for some tough times. And and would it also be safe to say that this upward swing that we're on now, it also creates what I call unintended consequences. That is, Federal Reserve says, oh, okay, things are great now. So the banks, uh, what people, a lot of people don't understand is banks make their money by interest rates and making loans. Okay, so Federal Reserve says we're going to up the interest rates so the banks will make money, so they'll have more money to lend because their hands have been tied for five, six, seven, eight years, so we're going to raise the interest rates so when Joe Blow goes to get a construction loan, instead of paying 1.5% interest, he's now going to pay 6 or 7% interest, so the bank will make more money. As a general rule, I don't think people realize that and how the Federal Reserve works in tandem with the way the market runs, not just here in the States, but globally. Yeah, it's a complex situation, and I would highly recommend a book called Maestro, which is about Alan Greenspan's tenure as Fed chairman. And, for example, if anyone who's going to be taking a microeconomic, a macroeconomics class, read this before that course, and it'll explain everything. And he is no longer lauded as, as the same genius he was at the time, but he was called the maestro back then because I wouldn't use the word manipulate, but manage the markets perfectly was the theory, right? We saw that was not the case, the year 2000 crisis and the crash and all that sort of stuff. But uh, the view was he was very carefully pulling the strings, not necessarily as a puppet master. And I, I agree with you that I think the Fed causes a lot of our problems. And I question the, a lot of the decisions they make. But part of the problem is they have this ridiculous dual mandate, which is impossible for them to fulfill. They are required to do two things by the original charter, and that is to have a full mandated um, level of employment. They are required to get a, whatever that term means, to have the country at full employment and also keep inflation in check. And these are diametrically opposed ideas, and you cannot really do one at its best without hurting the other. So it's almost impossible for them to do a good job. And they're also a political organization. If you look, whatever meddling Congress and the president tends to do, so it's very hard for them to do the right thing for very many reasons, which we don't have time to get into today. But I'm with you that I think they made a lot of poor decisions. For example, keeping interest rates near zero for as long as they did is a terrible idea because um, the simplest way to explain this is when the economy gets in trouble, the Fed usually steps in to bail it out. And interest rates are the tool that they will use. They have a couple tools. This is the one most of us know. If they lower interest rates, they're trying to make the economy heat up and improve. And the way they can pump the brakes on an overheating economy is by raising the interest rates. And it's a bit complex, but basically the amount of money can be pulled in and out of the markets by how they manipulate the interest rates and with the intention of trying to do the right thing. So the reason interest rates were at zero is they were trying to stimulate the economy. The theory being get more people, uh, let the companies do better, they will hire more people, which will raise salary, which will allow people to buy more goods. We are a consumer society, and that's the way they think. But by keeping interest rates as low as they did for as long as they did, they basically did not put bullets back in the gun to pull the trigger when the tough times come, which is why they've been trying to raise rates steadily now over time, and now we have this massive debate. Are they doing it too fast? Are they doing it too slow? When are they going to do the next one? And this is why people wring their hands about it all the time. It's incredibly complex, but you're absolutely right. As interest rates go up, banks make more money. So banks have not made as much with money with interest rates low. They've still done okay, but nowhere near what they could do. And at the same point, interest rates low are terrible for people who are saving. So if you are someone who is at or in retirement and you've worked your whole life and tried to save money, and now you've got a bank account earning zero interest, you're really being penalized. What the Fed is basically saying without saying it, is they're telling you, take your money out of the bank and put it in the risky stock market and invest it. That's the only way you're going to get a return on your money. I don't know that I personally agree with that perspective. <laughs> no, because when the last crash happened, millions of people lost everything for whatever reason. Now, we have several and 
other places and we were okay but I was watching the CD the interest rates on the CDs go from 0.001 to 1.0 after about four years and my money's just sitting there and I'm keep thinking do I want to leave it I mean it's only making a few pennies on the dollar but I left it there and as time has gone on and as interest rates have grown again the interest rate on my CD has risen. And this is what people don't understand. If they don't panic, if they just sit tight, like you say, it will eventually semi-correct itself if we can keep the politicians' fingers out of it. Well, one of the other problems is we haven't really talked about the impact of inflation. So inflation is higher than the rate of, of interest that you're earning on a savings account or a CD, which means your money is actually losing money every year in terms of purchasing power. That's true. That is very true. And and explain that to folks that that don't that are. Yeah. So inflation is hard to wrap your head around, and probably the best way to think about it is maybe healthcare. And healthcare costs have gone up astronomically over whatever period of time you want to talk about. So maybe it used to cost you a hundred dollars to have um, you know, a doctor do all these sorts of tests and see you, and, and now it costs $200. And the doctor's really not doing too much differently. And the tests may be a little bit more advanced, but probably not really all that different for your basic service. Um, that is inflation as an example. So basically the price of goods costing more. And you can – there's a couple ways to think about it, but basically um, if you have $100 in the bank account, and the Fed wants a bit of inflation because inflation is good because it gets rid of debt. So as inflation goes up, the value of the debt that you owe decreases, meaning you have a mortgage for $100,000. And if inflation is positive, what you actually have to pay back, you will still have to pay back 100000 physical dollars, but it won't be worth as much as that. So the Fed actually likes inflation. They see that as a positive thing. We can argue philosophically about whether that's right or wrong. But they target an inflation rate of 2%. And inflation is a weird number, but it's running at about 2.5%, let's say. So which means if your bank account interest is earning, say, half a percent, and inflation is 2%, you're losing 2% value of your money every year. You have the same number of dollars, but they just don't buy as much in the rest of the economy. So maybe another example, and then I'll, I'll stop and I'll let you talk, is um, you have $10 bills in the economy, and those $10 bills are all worth a dollar each for a total of $10. But if suddenly the Fed prints more money and there's 100 more of those dollar bills, now there's $110 bills, all trying to buy the same goods and services because the Fed manipulated the currency. They could do the opposite, and they could pull some out of circulation. So depending on the amount of goods versus dollars that are chasing each other is what inflation is adjusted by. And you just went into the segue. That was going to be my next question. Would you get out of my head, Alexander? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It was perfect. So in, I look at it as you're, as you're saying this, I'm seeing this tail wagging this dog. Mm. Because you have inflation and the dollar is worth twenty cents. So if you buy something for a dollar, now you've got to spend ten dollars to make it the value of a dollar. And the thing is, it's the same product. Used to, you could buy a bottle of aspirin for sixty-nine cents. That same bottle of aspirin by that same company. Same amount of aspirin in the bottle, same packaging, is now twelve, thirteen dollars. Mm. Would that be a good example? Yeah, time value of money has changed dramatically, and maybe the good context to share is we've probably all heard about the astronomical debt that the U.S. owes. I mean, there's there's what they they break it down to the average person if we were to break it out amongst our 300 million people in the country or just as a country as a whole. And it's, the numbers are so big, most of us can't fathom it. But the way to think about it is if, and the government won't say this publicly because it would be stupid 
to admit it, but basically if they can run inflation at a certain level, the more they can run it with the economy still functioning, the way that that loosens the debt that we have to pay. So the Japanese, the Chinese, a couple other giant countries own a lot of our debt. That's what they did. They bought it up and we have to pay them interest. But we, as the world's reserve currency, the federal government gets to print its own money. So they can make up whatever money they want and print it. But if the value of it has dropped, that actually helps us when we pay back those debts. So the government likes inflation. And we think about politicians and manipulating, it helps them as a tool. That seems just so wrong. On so many, number one, we cannot borrow as a country. We cannot borrow our way out of trouble. Neither can we keep paying other countries to buy their friendship. When are we going to well, learn lasts, this lesson? It lasts so well. It lasts as long as the other countries will accept it, right? So the easiest way to think about it: if you pull out the dollar bill, right? It, what is that dollar bill worth? It's only worth what you think it is. It's nothing. It's a piece of paper, right? In, in God Correct. we trust, e pluribus unum, all of this stuff, it's redeemable by the U.S. Treasury if you look at it, right? Only if you believe it's worth anything. You know, when the financial crisis comes, if the apocalypse comes, people will be burning it to stay warm because it won't be worth anything. If you go back to the gold standard in the old days, and this is why they had to close it and take the U.S. government off it, we had um, – every country has basically gold reserves that, you know, the Fed in New York has – vaults underneath where each country has some and maybe they move it between each other to settle debts literally or move it between each other's vaults but in the old days um, the french were actually calling the u.s out saying hey your dollars are redeemable for gold you better ship us this gold because we're not accepting your dollar bills which is why nixon had to take us off the gold standard because either we already did or we would have run out of gold eventually and we get away with that as a world's reserve currency but when you are in a gold standard system you could only have the value of what you could prove and otherwise there was nothing to do the way to think about it i guess is if we think back 20 30 years ago people would go to a store and buy something on layaway what that meant was i want this toaster i want this washing machine keep it in the back for me and i will eventually bring you the money i'll pay you a little bit every month and then you give it to me to take home right so that is that's the gold standard of we know what it's worth and we're going to give it to you in today's inflationary economy I'm going to buy it now. I'm going to put it on my credit card, and I'll pay it off for you slowly over time. <laughs> in the meantime, the interest rates keep piling up. Yes. And we have become yes. such a nation of plastic that I, I, I know very few people that even carry cash anymore. Well, a lot of people, uh, especially in certain – like China, for example, they don't carry wallets because now they all use digital wallets on their phone. And that's how they stay in touch. And, and that's coming here more, but you'll see a lot of young people use Venmo. They send electronic payments back and forth, and you can use Apple Pay and others to pay at a lot of stores now. So the world is definitely changing. And what happens when the apocalypse comes <laughs> and the technology is gone? The paper money is not worth the paper it's printed on. It's like I said, we use it for firewood and we go back to the old ways of bartering. <laughs> well, that's when you need that junk silver that's in the jar that we talked about. That, that, that and we get to watch people jump out of windows because they won't know how to handle it. So I, I think the reality is that we have done very well for a very long time. And in America especially, we've been very fortunate. And I think many of us should be thoughtful about how are we preparing for the times ahead not necessarily to predict the apocalypse, but just to say, well, is this going to continue? So I would argue something that is unsustainable will not be sustained. So if we think about the traditional pensions that governments have offered, whether it's federal, state, or local, they have told their firefighters and their police officers and their government workers, we're going to give you these big pensions. We cannot write those big checks unless we dramatically raise taxes or cut the benefits that we've promised, or some combination of the two. What is not sustainable will not happen. These promises that people have been given are not going to be realized. That is so true, and it's already happening in some cities across the country mm -hmm. because the cities are broke. Alexander, you're not going to believe this, my dear, and it just breaks my heart to say this, but our hour is almost up. <laughs> Well, Vaughn, it has been a I, pleasure. I've enjoyed this. Well, I wish you would. Would you be willing to come back after the first of the year? 
Sure, that would be my pleasure. Sweet. Now, ladies, I'll tell the folks where you can be found because I know they're going to want to hook up with you. I, he is not on Facebook, ladies and gentlemen, because he <laughs> trust me. But there's other places that you can find him, and I'm sure if maybe you have a question, he might answer it. If he's not busy, this is one busy man. Well, probably the easiest way to find me is on the school's website. So Gordon College is the website of gordon.edu. And in my department is slash grad finance, as if it was graduate finance. So gordon.edu slash grad finance. My email address is on that page. And always delighted to talk with any fan of Evolve. Oh, thank you, Alexander. And, yes, he will come back. Don't hang up when the show goes dark, but I do want to thank you so much for for taking an hour away from your family because I know you're so busy and I appreciate it. And please let your family know that I appreciate you spending an hour with me tonight because I learned a lot, and I'm hoping and I'm pretty sure that our audience learned quite a bit, whether they're in the States or worldwide, because finance is global. It is not just here in the United States, ladies and gentlemen. It's global. And each country affects the other. It's We're not an isolated city set on a hill. We all affect each other. Would that be a fair statement, Alexander? Oh, it's one of the few things that we can all be talking about all the time and still be talking about the same things. There you go. So with that being said, I want to thank Alexander Lowry for being here. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope that it's never too late to start saving for your golden years. Trust me, you will be grateful for doing it because you're going to need it. Things happen. There's death, there's catastrophic happenings, there's emergencies you're going to need to put aside and to be good stewards. It's like Alexander says, be good stewards of your finances because if you don't, you will be so very, very sorry because Social Security will not get it. Whatever your retirement package is from your country or government, it's not enough not in this day and age. With that, I want to thank Alexander again for being here. I want to thank each of you for being here. And there are a few things that I say at the end of every show, and one of them is this. People will forget your name. They will forget what you look like. They'll forget what you're wearing, but they will never, ever, ever forget how you made them feel. And I, my prayer is that you all know that you all are very special to me, guest and listener alike. And if you want to achieve greatness, ladies and gentlemen, just go out and do it. Don't ask permission because nobody's going to give it to you. And I don't mean saying I want to be the next president, I want to be an astronaut. Be great within yourself because you are great within yourself. Teach your children to be great because they are our future. Teach them good financial strategies. Teach them to be good stewards of their money, their life, their well-being, their health, their families, themselves, their love, their trust. Just teach them to be good stewards. Because when we are good stewards, then we can lay down and go to sleep at night. Would that be a, a good ending thought, Alexander? I think that's wonderful. We'll be back on night at 8 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time here at Off the Chain. We have a whole new week of guests. Join us. Know that this show will be going up in archive, so pass it, share it. It also will go up on podcast.com, SoundCloud, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, PodcastGardenFM.com, and TuneIn Radio, as well as Reverb Nation. Yes, we are heard all over the place, 200-plus countries, 200,000-plus listeners. And join us again next Wednesday night when we start once more here at Off the Chain. Have a good weekend, everybody. Go and share your newfound knowledge at Wisdom because you're going to need it. Trust me on this one. Until then, 
This is Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, and we wish you all a very good, good evening. Okay, we're off the air, Alexander, and everything we say now will go up in the archive part of the show. But what I wanted to tell you is when this show goes up into archives, I'll send you the link. Feel free to use it. Oh, great. Yeah, I I will send it to our college communications group, and they'll make sure we put it on all our social channels. Oh, that would be lovely. And then also I will also send you the links to all the podcasts. As well, oh, because great. we're on our, we're on iHeart Radio on two shows. We're on Southern Chats with Yvonne Mason and Off the Chain. So I'll be sure and send you all those links. Thank you so much. You you're an amazing human. You're so full of wisdom. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your your crowd tonight. It was a pleasure. Well, it was fun because I, I learned a whole lot, and I knew some things, but I learned a whole lot more, and I know I will learn more. So if you're willing to come back after the first of the year, because we didn't even talk about how you transition <laughs> your students into the business world once you give them all this newfound knowledge. Sure, I'd be, be delighted to come back. All right, my dear. Well, go and spend the rest of the weekend with your family. Again, thank them so much for giving me an hour of your time. I am truly, truly <laughs> grateful. I appreciate okay. it. Thank and you, Yvonne. Have you. a wonderful night. All right, dear, and I'll send you dates for after the first of the year. Oh, great. Thank you. Okay. Good night, dear. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> 